Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Josephine Halverson grew up in Cape Cod, where she first studied art on the beaches of Provincetown and at the School of Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. She received her BFA from the Cooper Union in 2003, and she attended Yale Norfolk in 2002. She got her MFA from Columbia University in 2007. Josephine has been awarded numerous prestigious residencies, including a Fulbright Fellowship to Austria, a Harriet Hale Woolley Scholarship at the Foundation des Etats Unis in Paris, Molly Sabata in Sablon, France, and the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation in Captiva, Florida. She was also the first American to receive the Rome Prize at the French Academy at the Villa Medici in Rome, Italy. Josephine's work has been exhibited widely. In 2015, she presented her first museum survey exhibition, Slow Burn, at the Southeastern Center for Contemporary Art in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, curated by Cora Fisher. In 2016, she exhibited large-scale painted sculptures at Storm King Art Center as part of the Outlook series curated by Nora Lawrence. Her work has been written about extensively in various publications, and she is one of the subjects of R21's documentary series, New York Close-Up. Josephine has taught at the Cooper Union, Princeton University, the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, Columbia University, and Yale University. In 2016, Josephine joined Boston University as Professor of Art and Chair of Graduate Studies in Painting. She lives and works in Western Massachusetts. I met Josephine at the site of her solo show at Sycamore Jenkins, and we spoke about her youth in Cape Cod, hip-hop and grunge, painting in plein air, and much more. Here's our conversation. Um, Where'd you learn to lip read? I don't know. I think I just, I think I'm slightly hard of hearing. Yeah. Um, just being visual? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think also because it's the first time I'm meeting you in person, that, yeah. you know, to have a conversation where we're... <laughs> In front of these, don't worry. After five minutes, it reminds me of one time I was. I had a roommate, and we were we'd gone to IKEA, and Mm -hmm. we bought some large piece of furniture, and I had a station wagon, and it went right between us. And I think we must have gone to the IKEA. It must have been in Long Island. I think it was before there was the Red Hook one. Yeah. And we drove, and we were in traffic for like hours and hours, and we kept talking, kept talking, but we couldn't <laughs> see each other the entire time. Could you see the rearview mirror? Could you see each other? I could. Uh, no. Well, she was sitting in the passenger seat. I was sitting in the driver's seat, but like mm-hmm. there was this thing between yeah, us. Yeah. I had that with my wife once. Where it's really weird when you're is. riding in the car and there's like a giant <laughs> box in between you, and you have no a ghost on yeah. the other side. Yeah. It's like, how's it going over there? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Got the kid. I got my kid in the back. Can't see him either. It's refreshing. <laughs> Completely different compartments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Make well, sure my phone's off. I'm uh, delightfully unprepared, so I, I don't really know where you grew up. So why don't you tell me about where you grew up? Um, I grew up uh, on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, in a town called Brewster, mm-hmm. um, which, when you hold your left arm out like this uh-huh. in a hook, then you kind of point to the the crease in the elbow. That's is, where you grew up? That's where I grew up. In the yeah. crease? Yeah, in the crease. Is it real? Is it like, you know, a Massachusetts vibe? It is a Massachusetts vibe. It's, um, but in a, in a coastal kind of New England way, 
it's um, Cape Cod is a tourist destination and mm-hmm. has been for many years, yeah. and um, and it's a um, it has a, a, an ethos of preservation, uh, historical preservation to an extent. In fact, my father for about thirty years was the chair of the historic district commission in my town, mm-hmm. where he would determine whether people could, um, what color their houses could be painted oh, or what yeah. materials could be used to be in some kind of vernacular of some idea of what constituted a historical look right. is a very peculiar thing and seems deeply un-American in a lot of ways. Just a certain shade of purple on your shutters could, you know, like, is that it really? Though? Basically, like, yeah. Color. Like a red door is okay or not okay or things like that. That's right. Footprints of houses, siding, whether mm-hmm. it could be vinyl or um, wood, whether it even gave the appearance of wood enough to, if it were some kind of composite or yeah. other more innovative material than traditional wood-framed houses or cedar shingles, it had to give the illusion enough to pass as something historic. So um, he was into that? You know, hard to say whether he was into it, but he was good at it, mm-hmm. and he um, and he also had a... Um, he's not really the kind of money guy. He doesn't really... has never really displayed any understanding of, of uh, finances. So what was great about that position is he never really seemed to realize the costs that other people had to incur based on his judgment. Oh, not <laughs> um, his own personal financials, the, the repercussions of the... The repercussions oh. of his decision. So, you know, being clueless about money actually put him in a position of actually upholding the code in, in ways that I think were less troubling for someone who, you know, or they would have been more troubling for someone who, who knew the repercussions of that. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I mean, the, cla- the, the issues of, um, of how... It's fascinating, um, yeah, I could talk about it for an hour, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's compli- It's like American, but un-American in a way. But I feel like that's the way things go sometimes. You exactly. Know? Yeah, it's, but you grew up around. Was it kind of like around nature? Yeah, I mean, I the Cape is largely now uh, suburban yeah. in a lot of ways, um, and uh, I it is quite different than when I first grew up there, mm-hmm. and it's different than when my my mother grew up there, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my mom said it goes back a long ways. And, um, uh, and so it's, um, from what I hear and from what I've observed, it's changed a lot. But nature, I would say, the, the biggest part of nature there is, is the sea, which mm-hmm. is very present. Yeah. And um, Brewster is, a, is one of the most tidal places in the world, so the tide comes mm-hmm. in and out. Is that a good Every or a bad thing? Would you say? Is that a good or a bad thing? Oh, it's it? great. I mean, it's it's fascinating, Scenic. and it was so it was so normal to me growing up that you know you would have to plan your swims in the in the bay based on the tide calendar mm-hmm. and the tide schedule, and that is um, fascinating to see. You come down at nine in the morning, yeah, and there's absolutely no water that you can see. It goes out about three miles. Right. And then if you come back just six hours later, um, three in the afternoon, it's full tide and covers the whole beach. Waves crashing on rocks and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I, wonder, I always wonder if people grow up around the coast or around the ocean, 
if they have a different kind of connection to the sublime or, you know, just a different relationship to the environment in the sense that like one wall of their existence is just open. You know, like I didn't have that growing up in Pittsburgh. It was like hills and streets and bridges everywhere, but no sense. And that's why when I go to the ocean now, I just, I love it, you know, but I feel separated from it in some way. But we, we vacation a lot. We go up to uh, Rhode Island and, you know, you can have, you can go to a beach. It's just a sandy, nice beach. It's quiet. And then drive 15 minutes away and go to this extremely like rocky, scenic, you know, coastline that you can't even get to the coast. And I love that, like the differences between those two things. Totally different vibe. It's true. It is a very, there, there is a lot of variation along the coastline. And um, even from the bay side on Cape Cod to the ocean side. And in the last couple of years now, sharks have become um, more uh, present more sightings of them mm-hmm. and and even some attacks actually um, just off the um, ocean side and even as of last summer some had come around to into the bay which is unusual yeah. with a tide like that um, it's I'm, unusual that they would migrate over I'm assuming that's environmentally forced on them or it's interesting there's just a lot of seals um, especially off the outer cape that um, that bathe there and live there and then there's also been a um, there's been a colony of sharks right off the where the um, uh, the plate what do you call it where the um, uh, oh, like a tectonic plate. The, yeah, yeah or, or uh, yeah the, the sea floor kind of drops off right um, oh the shelf the like shelf a, exactly yeah, right. and right below the shelf I forget how many miles off the coast but there's just an enormous community of sharks that are breeding, and and so they're coming over to feed on the seals, and that's why um, they're just uh, increasing frequency. But um, but the sublime is, I mean, seeing nature like that, mm-hmm. wildlife, and um, and the sea is really was something I just took for granted. It was part of my everyday experience, and literally every day, my high school was. Um, Nauset Regional, which was a public school on mm-hmm. the Outer Cape, which encompassed about five towns mm-hmm. um, from Provincetown to Brewster. And um, it's located in the National Seashore. So going to high school, you know, four years um, was really an extraordinary experience because about a half mile from the high school was um, the beach on the the, uh, you know, on the outer, um, you know, beach there, not on the bay side, but right, on the ocean right. side. And um, and so you could just go down there before school started or That's after. So cool. and, and because the public school system all shared the same buses, mm-hmm. uh, the buses were very staggered. Um, so elementary school, middle school, and high school all shared the same buses. So high school, for some reason, started at like 7 a.m. and finished at... <laughs> One or something, one thirty, um, and in the winter months, getting to school by seven meant leaving Brewster at like five something, five forty-five, Jeez. with That's all early. the stops. <laughs> and um, <laughs> once I started driving, I would go by myself, and I'd watch the sunrise often, right, um, right out there um, at the ocean, right before school started. And sometimes the sun wouldn't rise. In fact, for most of the school year, it was totally dark until. Mm-hmm like second period but just um yeah it really was seeing seeing the ocean was a daily 
part of my my life for 18 years. Yeah. I was just reading a study where they were talking about kids, like high, especially high school kids, should go to school an hour later because they will be more productive. And, it will, you know, right. it just seems like, man, that's early. That you to get it was rough. It was brutal. <laughs> I just remember showering and having my hair freeze at the oh. bus stop and being, you know, <laughs> brittle yeah, yeah. strands um, thawing a, on the bus. That's a real New England childhood. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. But you, was there, is there an accent where you're from? I mean, did you... My voice sounds a lot it? like my mother's. I, I, I'm it. often told I sound Canadian. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what that means, but I... You never talked about the shacks, you know? The shacks, the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can do a pretty good Cape Cod accent. Yeah. Um, I have that in my family. Right. My yeah, f- if you go deep enough, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even my, my father, really, he grew up west of Boston, and he, mm-hmm. has, he has some, some good um, expressions... Um, square area, which is oh, some yeah, square good. area. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel about you uh, getting into that? <laughs> <laughs> well, my both my parents had studied art in um, uh, in Boston, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, they were artists and yeah. they artisans, and they were um, always very supportive. Slash, just they were cool it was, with it. Yeah, they were. Uh, it was kind of obvious. I don't think that they ever were you know, thrilled or they were ever disappointed. It just seemed like the natural thing to do. That's so, what you're going to do. Yeah. Wow, that's a, rare, right? It's very rare. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of a nice... I mean, if you're doing what you're doing with your life, what you're doing, right. it's kind of nice that you had that upbringing so you don't feel this inner unconscious conflict of like, is this really okay that I'm doing this? You know, I've never had to ask that. Yeah. Um, I went to Cooper Union. It was free. I got a scholarship. I I just, it's a very rare, I more and more, I, I realize how rare that is. I've had other challenges, but that's, um, that's not something at all that has been provided any friction or any um, difficulty. Um, I mean, my, my father... Um, and my mother both are instantly engaged with my work as well to this day. In fact, they just visited this weekend to see the show, and um, and that's really it is very special. They they also don't hesitate to be critical of my work, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and right. uh, they jump right in. They know exactly what it what I'm doing, and they have real opinions about it. Um, and we talk and about it. They're somewhat informed, so maybe that is a little stronger of a voice, right? Where usually with parents, it's like yeah. They, know what they're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand what you're doing. It's just, I could do that, you know, that sort of thing. But you're actually, they're coming from a real critique in a way. They are. And my dad was the kind of artist where he, his work was, when he made a painting in the, you know, in the 1960s, he was making paintings of, you know, urinating on paintings and throwing eggs at them. Um, no. Calling it egg tempera, you know. By <laughs> egg temper? Egg temper, exactly. <laughs> was he like watching, I mean, was he inspired by Warhol's Piss paintings? Totally. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he was making paintings with... That's pretty um, cool that your dad, I mean, that's a rarity. Come on. <laughs> it is a rarity. And he, and he was also doing very experimental things, like throwing paintings off of cars when he was driving on the highway, you know, just to see how they end nice. up drawing with glue and... When, when it was white and then it would disappear and become clear. Um, so he, 
and then he moved into sculpture and made these very political sculptures about um, dictators and severing their heads and they were swinging on, um, they were kind of kinetic and... Um, were you exposed to that? Kind of yeah, stuff? totally. How old were you? Were you young? When you... Yeah, they were always around. I mean, by the time I was, he really stopped making art when I was a kid. So probably by the age of 10 or 12. Man, and that's got to be crazy to grow up around. It was crazy. Stuff. And so I feel like my work is, I think he, he's never come out and said this, but I, I always get the impression he thinks my work is very conservative. and. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, if he's throwing I, paint on cars, yeah, exactly. pissing on his painting. And I feel like it's very radical um, and rebellious. So mm -hmm. it's it's funny, those those kinds of um, right. perspectives that Context. you can see within a, a family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> What's your mom think? Well, my mom, um, she always, uh, she, she, um, she, when she was a, a, a painter, she, she was very aware and anxious of the of kind of every move she made um mm -hmm. she was um probably more of a perfectionist and she also um didn't have any money she was very sensitive about the amount of material she was using and um and i think painting just gave her a lot of anxiety actually yeah. so when she moved into kind of more three-dimensional work and she had a number of jobs she's just always loved like she was she painted mannequins in Boston. That was something she she loved to do. Um, not her own work, of course, but it was just um, Wait, painting. like painting them like just their facial yeah, features like that make them look realistic. Exactly those ones. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she loved that. That's great. But interestingly, even that was kind of three dimensional with yeah. the mannequin. And then she learned how to make. Um, lanterns out of metal working for an uncle on Martha's Vineyard in the nice. 70s and um, and then she and my dad met and they they made this business making kind of custom metal things like um, they started by going around and on the Cape and asking people if they needed anything fixed they mm -hmm. were really into kind of fixing things and antiques and whatever and um, they, the story goes that they knocked on people's doors and had a whole truckload of uh, broken um, metal objects, which they then just hunkered down and fixed and um, kept doing it and learned, kind of acquired all these skills. Also, at the time, they were able to purchase these tools that were largely outmoded, mm -hmm. um, 19th century kind of um, brakes and roll formers and shears and these... Um, they have a beautiful metal shop, which they've maintained, lovingly maintained these tools for all these years. And then they got into blacksmithing, and um, and so just um, they've done everything from custom kind of railings to copper roofs, bar tops made out of zinc, all kinds of very custom. Every project is different, and they yeah. work together. And it seems like they really found their... Métier, you know, their mm -hmm. way of working in a way. So, so my mother talks about it as if it took a while to locate her own kind of sensibility. And, um, and I think even though it's not art in the way that we might see it today, I think that it is, um, that's the way they have approached pretty much everything that they do. Yeah. I think it's so important too, because, you know, you teach. Right. You know, and in teaching to, to let students know that there isn't just one way to be creative. You know, there's so many different ways. 
And some people just need that variety, you know, whether it's in your own work of working with different media or, or just doing different kinds of creative work over time, or else you get stale or, you know, you could just fall into a rhythm or something. So they're doing all that stuff, and here you are just painting paintings. Right. <laughs> so conservative. <laughs> totally. totally. I so mean, I guess that's why they were. Yeah, I mean, I think that they, um, yeah, but it's also time scales, and I think when you look back, it's easy to look back on the last 40, 50 years of their lives and mm-hmm. see the, this evolution, but, um, yeah, they were constantly evolving and changing, and um, they were making stovepipe for a lot of people, mm-hmm. and then they realized they could just, it might just be more lucrative to, like, sell stoves um, mm-hmm. that they didn't make. Um, I don't think they were ever motivated by making money, but they were um, yeah, they were motivated by making the right thing, doing it the right way. And they were interested in kind of alternative energies and green fuel before that even became a term. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so then they did that. And then they had to sell wood because they had you know, the wood stoves. And then people wanted gas stoves. And then they got their gas licenses. And then they were selling gas things. And they had to sell gas. And, you know, it's just, um, it's the, it's this constant evolution of just curiosity and trying to kind of like provide something that people need um it's been very inspiring also the way they've run their business um all these years in the face of just automation would you say automation automation but also maybe yeah it's all by hand i mean even even when they've sold things which are prefabricated um they know these companies that have been making these stuff like vermont castings for instance or yodel these companies that are that have um, annual, they go to the annual trade shows, they know all the people, it's very face-to-face. Um, and then also with small business and seeing their values, um, really, as I said, as artists, um, the kind of ethics of how they deal with their community. I think pretty much every single house on Cape Cod, they've probably been in at one yeah. point or another. To I do mean, some sort of something, job. Yeah. Some job. And it's just, it's really, and now they're starting to, visit you know help people who are the children of the people who's you yeah. know or update a, a stove that they put in 25 years ago it's that's like an old school way I, i'm sure that's really the way it worked back in the day where you had people who would go around and do that you know it's kind of nice that that can still happen <laughs> it is and i think cape cod is a place that really values that in mm-hmm. fact you know par- part of what i was saying earlier about that um historic district commission or whatever but there's also there's quite a lot of regulation about chain businesses and to stay away from the Cape. And I think that's partially because of the tourist, tourism industry. They've been able to um, maintain the markets for these small businesses. Uh, but it, it is an extraordinary place in certain seasons, like in the off-season. Yeah. It's almost more like a bartering kind of economy. And then in the summer, it's... Um, you know, it's a radically different yeah. economy, like the any tourists tourist come place. in, right? Yeah. But it's meant that there has been space for independent um, businesses to survive. Just, I mean, it's been extremely difficult, and never more so than right now, I yeah. think. Um, but it's uh, it's such a shame when I see how hard they've worked, how how um, committed they've been to their community, um, how much they've given back, how they've never been motivated by anything other than really doing a good job Mm -hmm. 
and um, and um, I'm not like valorizing my parents in a certain way, but I I think the ethics of the way that they they've done things is incredibly noble, and I'm very lucky to have have been able to grow up around that. But the sacrifices they've made, and when I think about all the people, you know, who who yeah, all the ways that they could have um, done things differently, they were certainly the right generation to maybe like you know buy stocks or yeah. do something like <laughs> right. to, to provide for their futures. Um, right. But they were just so focused on what they were doing on the ground in a very local way. Um, that wasn't really um, something that they pursued. Um, and so in some sense, the kind of economic boom of the late 20th century really passed them by mm-hmm. while they were kind of, you know, hammering metal. <laughs> but it's probably what they were happy to do. You yeah. Know. It brought them, I, I think it still brings them a tremendous amount of pride and pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. So there was no fight whenever you, it was just predetermined you were going to go to school when you graduated high school and study art. Well, it was, you know, I didn't have any money for school. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like, you know, if you want to go to college, you can go to college, but you have to figure that out on your own. And um, that's refreshing. And, yeah. <laughs> In these days of like parental <laughs> pressure for like saving away to pay off for your children's like $200,000 education. <laughs> It's like, you know what, you figure it out, you'll be fine. Exactly. I mean, they really were very, very clear about that Mm -hmm. and um, for various reasons. But um, I was an only child. I don't think that they fully understood the kind of uh, education industry that it's become and that it it was it was even at that time. but uh, so Cooper Union had been the only art school I applied to, and um, and I went there, and um, but the rest were universities because I was also interested in other things and yeah. I was a good student and I wanted to, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to kind of focus so soon on being an artist. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they were very they were very enthusiastic, um, and um, actually a customer of theirs happened to be the dean of the. Um, School of Art at Cooper Union, and that's how we even found out about it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, gui- I didn't have a guidance counselor in high school who was aware right. of what Cooper was. And I remember he said, um, he said, you, you know, they were putting in him like a pellet stove or something for for him, and and he said to, um, he said to my parents, well, if your daughter's interested in art, she should go to Cooper Union, and. Um, and so they said, okay. And actually, we took a trip to New York. I, I must have been. A sophomore, I must have been a sophomore at that time. I just remember I had a terrible cold, mm-hmm. and he met us and took us around. And it was so nice, and oh, that's um, cool. I just was, I just instantly fell in love with that place, and I right. thought this is really where I want to be. And so, it's free. It's free, which is amazing. <laughs> My parents were like checking out the, you know, the drill press in the shop, and oh, right. you know, yeah. gave their sign of approval that it would be a good place to to study because the shops were good. Yeah. And it is the advancement of school for art and science, correct? Right. So you can take, it's more than just an art school. Or is it now in, just art classes? In you theory, know. I mean, it's, that was the principle on which it was founded, which right. was really based on, I think, more kind of liberal arts ideas of um, science and art. Mm-hmm. Like um, in Paris, there was the Art et Métier, that school, which was kind of industry, arts and industries. Mm-hmm. And the way that they can combine a very 19th century idea. In reality, today though, there are three separate schools: art, architecture, and engineering. And the humanities classes are um, shared by all three. But 
I mean, there's some uh, informal overlap, but not necessarily curricular overlap. You're not getting a deep science and art education. It's just you're exposed to, or you have access to that population of the school. Yeah, Uh, there are some people who really, you know, who really do kind of bridge different programs, but with, I think, the way accreditation is and mm-hmm. certain curricular structures today, it's very difficult to to kind of just, you know, dip in, dip out, kind right. of yeah. into these other schools. But at the same time, socially, I mean, I had, a, I had an electrical engineer as a roommate for four years when I was in college, mm-hmm. and um, we got to know a lot about what each other was doing, and that was very meaningful. Yeah, that's cool. So you, what year did you graduate? 2003. 2003. So, and then what was your plan? Was it New York? I mean, did you feel like once you moved down to Cooper, like, okay, I'm just going to stay here and make work? Yeah, I thought, I I mean, it's so, it's, it's, um, yeah, I I think, you know, growing up in the Cape also with this summer kind of influx, and I, I spent a while talking about my parents, but there were other kind of more, maybe more significant influences at that time. Of course, my parents were hugely influential, but they were kind of doing their thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, just mean you figure it out, kind of. Um, and uh, and one of the things that I, I just really liked art, I probably identified like that as an artist because of them in, in large part, but I also took to it. Mm-hmm. And I studied, um, I was taking life drawing classes all over the Cape and running a kind of life drawing class in Chatham and uh, going up to Provincetown um, to do life drawing in lieu of high school art classes and mm-hmm. um, meeting artists up there. And then and then I started working in Provincetown at a gallery and taking, taking classes in the summer from this uh, school there where we'd paint outside. And anyway, it was a really incredible time in my life and in like my... I was probably 16, 17, 18. And I also was taking a Saturday class in Boston at the museum school where my mom had studied and with this incredible teacher named Barnett Rubenstein. And um, at that point, yeah, that was, I was like, okay. You caught the bug? I caught the bug, but also at school I wasn't, I was, I had a couple really close friends, but by and large it wasn't something that, it was like I was leading a double life in a way. I wanted to achieve well at school and I had this kind of hope for something in the future but there was one thing I knew which is I really wanted to be in New York and so when I got to Cooper that was like my dream come true and and um and New York was everything I had hoped it would be a more I loved it and um and and so after Cooper I you know I'd kind of you know I did what I wanted to do and I wasn't quite sure what was next and I figured I wanted to live abroad at some point, mm-hmm. and so I applied for a Fulbright and to go to Vienna, and I got that, and I lived in Vienna for a year. Mm-hmm. So I was, I mean, full other exposure, right? Totally. Yeah, and speed and color, and so that had a big effect, I'm sure. It was oh, yeah. traveling. Oh, I, well, for me, it's such a huge part of my, you know, visual like lexicon. You know what I mean? Just traveling just exposes you to so much. So I'm sure that was amazing. Yeah, it was totally transformative. And Good coffee too, probably. Yeah, coffee. Yeah. Was, that was when I yeah, that was when I really fell in love with coffee. I've never yeah. gone back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Um, yeah, totally, 
Did you work while you were there? Were you sketching? Or were you painting? Or yeah, I mean, I had a Fulbright to be painting, and that's what I was so doing. I was, I was painting portraits. I actually was there to kind of like think about psychology and expressionism and painting, which at that point were painting had risen. It, you know, Cooper Union was totally interdisciplinary, and there was I took classes in all kinds of things, and I was really hooked into certain. Um, I was hooked into all kinds of things. I mean, graphic design. I took this amazing class with Philippe Appelwag, mm-hmm. um, who's someone whose work I still look to, and someone personally who's also been very meaningful in my life. Um, to um, photo- I took a lot of photography, film, video, sculpture, painting, drawing. I mean, everything. I was art history, history. I took this great class on... Um, Du Bois and Reconstruction and you know it was just it was truly like a very broad education and yet at the end I was I had figured out I think through that but also drawing on what I'd learned before painting was something that was just it was the thing that uh, was way out ahead of the rest in terms of what I wanted to pursue it was just addictive it was something I couldn't figure out it was very challenging and um, and I connected with it. Mm-hmm. And so when thinking about what to do next, I was essentially kind of committing to painting and what was painting. And that's what that application was, was about. Well, I felt like painting was something that had to do with expression and painting had to do with something psychological. And that's about all I knew. And, um, uh, and so... Vienna seemed like the right place to be. I'd studied a little bit of German. I looked at the statistics online. It seemed like I had a better chance of going there than France, which is where you know, I had studied French um, for a while. So I felt like I could either apply there or I could apply to a German-speaking country. Mm-hmm. And um, in Vienna, I don't know. I'd played music growing up. I was, you know, really... Oh, we're going to get into that. What'd you say? We have to get into that. Uh, no, maybe not. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's never very good. But I, you know, the the mystique around this, yeah. around kind of Fantasiecle Vienna and mm-hmm. whatever the empire and all of the. You, you think know, composers, you know, and, and yeah. like that kind of music, you know, yeah. So, so you enjoyed it? I did, and I, I applied there. I didn't really know what I was getting into, though. I just thought, like, I want to be in Europe, and so I went yeah. there, and um, just there to make portraits of people but I didn't know anyone so I arrived and I was just kind of like "Hmm, what do I you know how does this work I didn't really think through this part and I was also um, an English language teacher at a at a middle school high Mm -hmm. school a native speaker teacher and um, I had it was so eye-opening but Vienna was not a very hospitable place to live in as an American Mm -hmm. Um, I was often asked if I was French because I had a French accent and a French name, but and I would just say yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was better Easier than, that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was better than saying Sit I was American. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and its history it was a very violent past, um, and you felt it—the kind of vacuum yeah. that was left um, from the Holocaust and um, the. In fact, I think it was the year that I arrived. Or maybe the year before, um, there was an incredible sculpture that was commissioned by Rachel Whiteread, which is in Judenplatz, which is like mm-hmm. 
the sculpture is a library, the kind of interior of that. And that's a piece that I, I think of as probably, in my own work, one of the, the most significant, you know, in the top ten of kind of my favorite artworks ever. Yeah. And um, the symbolism of it, the site specificity of it, the, you know, the density of it and the materiality, everything about it um, is just, I think it's like one of the most perfect pieces. And, um, and I, f- so seeing how art could actually engage with history also at that point was, um, it felt very exciting um, mm-hmm. being in such proximity also in another culture's history. Yeah. Um, it was, it made me also more acutely aware of my own. I think that happens when you go abroad and you kind of never feel more American than when you're, you're like, oh, somewhere I'm else. This. <laughs> yeah, it, you need that, like to get out of the your own confines to realize like, oh, that's where I'm from and this is so different. Yeah, that's like hugely important, I think, to the development of people's awareness of the world and, and cultural sensitivities and, you know, all that stuff. And I think traveling is so good for that. Did you travel? Did you did you go no, abroad not when you were young? <laughs> I grew up dirt poor in Pittsburgh, so I, d- I didn't travel until my artwork started letting me travel. So, I mean, well, well, I was thinking about it when you were saying, like, you know, you went there, you kind of didn't know what you were getting into. You just, like, kind of go. And there's something great about that because it's not like, oh, I'm going to Paris. I'm going to experience this museum, this croissant, you know this music or whatever you have a pretty good idea about what might happen but there's really something refreshing about not knowing and when I was younger I played music so we would go on tour and do the country so seeing the United States although it's all the United States it's there's like 50 different countries in this country you know what I mean it's like a lot of different sensibilities to different areas and I learned a lot from just being going to all these cities and so I think that was the the that opened up the door for me to want to travel more. And then I didn't really have a lot of money. I couldn't travel, travel. So once I got out of school and I started showing my work and I was able to travel to Europe and to Asia and stuff like that, that's when, you know, you get the bug. You you start traveling and and it opens your eyes to so much, you know. That was really the start of it. Yeah. Yeah. I know it is is extraordinary and it is a bug. It's like I've, I've had... That year in Vienna, which was 2003 to four, and then I I lived in Paris from 2007 to eight, and then I lived in in Rome from 2014 to 15, and I'm just thinking like, okay, so I've got like three more years until I've got to spend another year abroad because it's it's been in these regular increments. But yeah. I, it is it's a it's a desire that is I think the desire to kind of translate everything you see culturally. Um, certainly abroad with language I love speaking and learning other languages Mm -hmm. but also the languages of just how people dress the codes of um, typography and urban planning food um, uh, transportation signage it's just there's so much that needs translating and I think getting in that mindset of you know, getting your brain actually kind of in that translation mode is something that is, um, it feels like a muscle that I don't like when it atrophies. Right. But when I'm in it, I'm really, I can almost, almost physically feel the the translation happening in my own brain of this right. to this or the kind of analogical thinking. If this is to that, then that is to that. Mm-hmm. 
and it's um it's something that i feel is like an incredibly rich experience yeah we see what happens when people when that muscle atrophies for a long long time right. you know you become and i think every american should spend a year at least a year somewhere else Absolutely. just as like education you know what i mean do you ever think uh, or i'm sure you're interested in traveling outside of europe yeah, to other I, places. I, I, I mean, am, have you gone to a lot of different? I haven't. I mean, I've been to Russia, um, but no, I've never been to. Um, I've never been to Africa or Asia. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd love to. I I would really love to, but at the moment, I'm I'm also um, kind of tired. You know, at a certain point, it does become tiring, and um, I I need to probably get to a new place in my life when I'm. Because if I go, I'd like to really spend a, a good chunk of time to yeah. get to that. So I'm not just visiting, but really also living in the place, um, and feeling changed by the place in in the way that uh, the everyday habits can be translated um, has deeply kind of changed me so far. But uh, so I I kind of crave that. But realistically, I'll probably do shorter visits, or I'd like to at some point. Right. Um, I sometimes well, worry that maybe I've missed my opportunities to, you know, to travel to certain places. The world is changing pretty fast, and um, I feel urgent to, like, if I can, I should. But at the same time, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've been, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about travel and tourism, and and I yeah. think this also comes back to the Cape as well. It's like... Growing up in such a tourist destination, I, I just gave this talk last week in Memphis where there was a question that was basically like, so do you think your work is, your practice is basically related to tourism and the way that you kind of perceive that to be, you know, growing up on a, in a very tourist kind of destination? Mm-hmm. And I think that actually that's a big part of my work in travel and this kind of more um, itinerant way of working has been, and um, I'm not quite sure how to make sense of it yet, actually, but... But travel in a and living in a different place, or my own questions about what constitutes a place and when a place is yours and when it's not, and when borders, you have right? Borders, like drawing yeah. lines, and yeah, exactly. I'm just it's it's like a place of of real fascination, and and um, it's 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 like a it's like a thing that I've been I'm stuck on. You know, I'm really really stuck on this issue of who has the right to be where and where we're born, whether that matters, how place becomes part of us, how we become part of a place. And I guess the, the right word here is maybe belonging. Like if you belong to a place or it belongs to you. And um, I'm, I, it's just it's something that I'm, I'm working through, I think, in my work, but it's, it must come back in some sense to growing up in such a transient, um, seasonally kind of um, always kind of changing yeah. uh, area like Cape Cod. I think the reason too that that's confusing is it's such a duality. You know, there's the thing that supports the community and like tourism, and you know, enables some sort of small business or certain atmosphere to sustain. But then there's also this sampling of an area. And same thing with like going to other countries. Or just feeling about culture and borders in general. There's something really uh, amazing about culture and, and, and language. Language is a different kind of border in a way. And you know, you can celebrate 
a country and their culture. And at the same time, if it becomes too hermetic or it separate, it can also separate you from other people. And there's, there can be an unwillingness to understand other people's cultures and languages. So it's this weird, beautiful, yet can be isolating thing about, you know, right. culture borders and all that stuff. So it's, it's always going to have that duality, I think, and that richness. It you know. is. And even if you are, even if you are, I don't know, I think about this with Vienna. It's the reason why I had applied to Vienna was not just expressionism and psychology and, you know, the stats, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> but, but also when I was, I think, 10 or something, um, I had gone to Europe for the first time. My uncle was um, working in Germany, and um, a family I grew up with um, had moved to the Czech Republic, um, uh, and I visited them. We went to visit my uncle, and then we drove from Frankfurt to um, Polzin in, I think it was, it must have been 1990, um, maybe 91. And um, it had just come out of communism, and on that, and this was before the EU. This was mm-hmm. before Schengen. Um, so when we drove, uh, it was my mom, my uncle, and I, and we drove across the border, and we had to wait for a long time to get into what was recently the Czech Republic, because it had just broken out of um, communism and and so was maybe. separated from, um, you know, it was no longer Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. And so, and I was, I mean, I was pretty young, and we drove through this little corner of Bavaria um, that I guess was Austria, or at least, you know, from the car, and I remember seeing a waterfall and um, thinking, this is like, Austria is the most magical place, Mm -hmm. and I, again, very, very young, and then 10 years later, 12, 13 years later, when I went to apply, I still, I think this was the reason why I ended up studying German, um, in high school, maybe it was also the influence of my uncle, who, mm-hmm. who I'm close with. But um, I felt like um, that one moment or ten minutes of driving in the car past that was, in some sense, it remains equally significant to me as a whole year living in Vienna. Right. And this is where the the kind of elasticity of time in a in a place is. It's so complex how a place ends up in your own mental life. It could be 10 minutes or it could be a year or a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And it's such a strange form of influence how place is is part of us and informs our aesthetic, our way of understanding the world, our kind of... It's really nice, life. though, isn't it? Because yeah. if it were so predictable, it would be kind of, you know, predictable. Right. You know, like I... We'd, I remember a, a gig our band played in New Orleans, and I have such a uh, feeling about New Orleans based on this one night and being there and sleeping in someone's apartment the day I let us sleep in the fifth floor walk up of this swampy, humid place and really nice people, really great gig. And, you know, like that, just walking to the show and seeing all these like bars with like jazz and blues playing, you know, it was, it was just a feeling about it. And I haven't spent two weeks there, living there, or, you know, I can't really describe it, but it has a real warm place in my heart. Whereas someone, like, I, I pretty much travel to Japan every year, and I have a very different and very deep relationship with that country, you know what I mean, and being there. So, 
but it has it's not the magic even though it's my favorite place in the world I, it it's not the magic that that feeling that New Orleans had you know and that's a total different time you know investment in a place it's really interesting how that how different that is it is and how how, how these places can change us and our own sense of identity and way of seeing the world in the three years that I've lived abroad, separate cultures and separate countries, and separate languages, I've noticed with each of them that it takes me three months to feel like myself in them. Yeah. It's weird. It's right. like right at the 90-day mark, and I can almost Exhale. guarantee that this would happen yeah, yeah. again. And what is it about that when you feel, I don't know, like... It's such a strange sensation of feeling lost in a in a place, like losing your losing your identity when you're speaking another language. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if I regain everything of who I am. I'm relatively lost <laughs> whenever I'm, mm-hmm. probably always. But and you're always kind of changing. But that awareness of your own location of your own identity in a in a, a specific place and time. It's fascinating, and it can just be a very brief moment that changes you. But yeah. I don't know; it's it's elusive, and and I'm I'm constantly thinking about this. Right? Yeah, I think it's good though. It's like it's kind of like I mean, it's good for you as a person. It kind of calibrates you or something. You yeah. know? Oh yeah. That's why I love when I do go to Japan. I love it because it's so I never feel here like like different, or no one ever looks at you, me. Mm-hmm. You know. But there, I'm like clearly an outsider, mm-hmm. and that's a different dynamic. And I think it's important to understand that feeling and to have empathy for people who are, you know, outside of a feeling just like, oh, I'm just comfortable here, or whatever. You know, I, I don't know. I think it's good for like it, we should come up with a curriculum of things that all people need to do by the time they're like 18. Exactly. Spend a year in a different country. Go somewhere where you're not like everyone else. You know. Totally, Learn especially, language. especially for politicians. I remember at the Fulbright oh, Commission in Vienna, it was you walked in through the security system, and it was uh, there was a large photograph of George Bush, and then a large photograph of Dick Cheney, and and um, that greeted you, you know, when you walked in, because this was a United States mm-hmm. diplomatic kind of commission and building. And I just remember thinking, if only they had been forced to have a Fulbright, you know, if only right. they'd. Which is, of course, what William Fulbright, I think, had in mind starting right. this, yeah. um, really as in response to world wars and how to bring people together and have culture be shared. And I completely agree with you. I think it's it's essential, yeah. and especially when you're young, you know, as you say. Right. Yeah. I think you don't. If you have that feeling of other, you can do things to certain people and be like, well, they're not us, you know. But anyways, yeah, I think that's a... And if you can, if there's any way that you can, and I think that's why I also just... I was just very lucky, and I um, I think that luck plays a big part in this. You know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have gone to Europe if it hadn't been that my uncle happened to be living there. This family happened to be in Polson in 1991 or whatever. Yeah. I wouldn't have applied to, to Austria. I wouldn't have lived there I think also the confidence that is gained through actually just knowing you can get to a place and mm-hmm. you can figure out how to survive is, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's tremendously helpful. But the, these, so I had a degree of confidence where I felt like, oh yeah, I could probably speak German all year. I wasn't shy about my own abilities. And, um, but that is, it's really a lot to do with luck. 
And yeah. I wish that there could be more structural ways that this could happen in um, in America today. Well, the internet. Yeah, the internet. I mean, true. if there's one good thing about it, I mean, you got lucky because you know your your dad was somewhere where was, you know someone said, hey, you should go to Cooper. Right. You know, Cooper Union. And then, like, how would you have known? Your right. life would have been totally, totally different, different if you didn't, if you, you went to BU or school. something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Not that it would have been bad, or it just would have been different, totally. you know? Yeah, luck has a big, it's the, you know, the whole adage is like, it's luck and really hard work and being at the right place at the right time, but right. really hard work. Like, without the hard work, you don't get any of that. So let's talk about your work, the hard work Yeah. of being in the studio. I mean, with... So you found yourself as a painter. I mean, painting was just something that you felt was your way, your mode of communicating. And um, what's, I mean, I mean, we could talk about these specific paintings in the show here or just what, what you were doing in school and like how that migrated into what you're doing now or, or your general feelings about painting. But yeah, I mean, it's totally connected to everything we're talking about because when I first got to Cooper Union, which was... Uh, Bauhaus um, style curriculum of mm -hmm. foundation year and uh, which had the principles of, of um, two-dimensional design, three-dimensional design, color, and drawing. I was, um, there was no painting in that year and I was instantly aware that where I came from and I was, al I had already been aware of this because of the fluctuating kind of populations on the Cape mm -hmm. um, that there was the local kind of Cape Cod art, which was uh, in a landscape tradition. And then there was this higher kind of art, which was had to do with um, the city. Mm -hmm. And that was evidenced by, uh, even before I got to Cooper, but through people like Hans Hoffman or Franz Klein, who came to the Cape and made paintings there, Milton Avery. And yet their their real lives, their professional lives, were in New York, mm -hmm. and um, and so this issue of regionalism was already apparent to me before I even went to Cooper. But it became it became very clear to me at Cooper that you couldn't make a painting of a snowy, you know, um, uh, crossroads. Um, Seen or a seagull in the sky right. in a way that was that would be considered serious it would be ironic maybe right um as certainly at that time when irony still existed and um and it but it would not have been taken seriously and so i was i was very acutely aware of this hierarchy i guess and um and i and i was i was confused about it and I still am confused about it. All the stuff that we're talking about with place and um, tradition and how a, how a place has its own um, ethos to it or whatever. Um, these are interesting questions to me. And, um, and, and now more than ever with this so-called globalized art market mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, so I, So coming to painting after this really rich education through um, regional traditions on the Cape, how to paint the color of light with a palette knife, to um, Barney Rubenstein's kind of Boston school, emphasizing drawing and perception to, um, and he, by the way, was the first person I remember showing, he showed 35 millimeter slides of 
Morandi and Albert York and um, Nicholas de Stahl painters who I had never heard of before. Yeah. It was the first time I encountered them. To then going to Cooper and trying to kind of unlearn all that and get back to the principles of visual art mm-hmm. and and then um, and then emerging from that and going to Vienna and I mean just I was really had so much in my going on in my head I had so much exposure by the way also New York was not just the education in the city in, sorry in the school but also in the city where um, my boyfriend at the time was a skateboarder and you know there, we were in the context of graffiti you know graffiti seemed like a viable kind of art form mm-hmm. um, skateboarding skate videos which were incredibly beautiful um, to Keith Haring murals and Felice Gonzalez Torres mural I remember on the Bowery at that time there was this hip hop there was a sense that there was a lot of art that was happening outside the institution mm-hmm. and um, and so and yet in painting there seemed to be like this very oppressive hierarchy I guess and um, and uh, and that was um, that was something that I uh, was um, really acutely aware of I guess so when it came time to like how I wanted to be an artist not a painter but an artist and painting was the was the kind of medium for my own expression as I was discovering it mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out a way to do this that was um, that was that reconciled these various things that I'd been learning and thinking about and I was suspicious of those hierarchies, I guess. And one of the one of the things, this is sorry, this is like the long way around to no, say I love that it. Yeah. I just couldn't figure out why painting had to exist in a studio in a city, mm-hmm. and why this kind of white cube of a studio space was the go-to thing. And I was aware of its historical um, precedence through especially a place like Cooper Union through Bauhaus, right. for instance, and um, post-World War II um, ways of exhibiting artwork and mm-hmm. specifically painting. And it was also, I was suspicious and uninclined, I guess, to, um, suspicious of and uninclined to be working in this box where, like, genius kind of happened, and that that is what painting was supposed to be. Right. And because that's not the stuff that it excited me experientially. What mm-hmm. excited me was like walking the streets of New York and um, being um, being outside, painting on the beach in Provincetown, seeing the sunrise, you know, next to my high school. I was so interested in a certain kind of like outside experiential kind of way of being that I really felt was... Was I wanted that feeling in painting, and yet I didn't. I couldn't see myself in a studio, and find I couldn't find that in a studio mm-hmm. space alone. And um, and I found that through photography. I found that through um, these other things I mentioned, like you know, even though they weren't like I wasn't a photographer. I knew that I, tr- I tried it. I wasn't a skateboarder. I wasn't a graffiti artist. I wasn't like all these things. Um, and I was a painter, and so that's really how I started to kind of 
think through my work, but it's been challenging because then I had to deal with the these implicit hierarchies of of like plein air painting, which mm-hmm. um, was a way that I could be a painter and be outside. And and it took me a while. I mean, I basically it took me until after graduate school before I ever even kind of admitted that to myself. In fact, I made kind of secret bodies of work <laughs> in painting just because I was embarrassed. Now, right. for some reason, now it seems maybe it's just my own experience doing it, but I feel like it seems a lot easier to do now than it did back then. But maybe mm-hmm. you can understand what I mean. No, I know exactly what I mean. I think too, at a certain point, you just you like the even you know tapping back into that idea of the white cube or like what a studio I'm always amazed that you know there's a certain studio practice that you're supposed to have it's supposed to be a certain space and it has to be here or you live there or whatever it is you know I I think there's all these expectations and then at a certain point of working on what you're doing you become confident maybe not just in the work but confident in what you're trying to do and accomplish as an artist that where you're just like I don't care like this is what I'm gonna do, and this is what it's about, and it just takes a while maybe to to feel that or to be comfortable with your own voice, and you know whether it's plein air painting or whether it's you know, you know I don't have a studio like Gabriel Rose goes, you know like I'm just going to make art from yogurt caps or something. You know I think it takes a while to get to that point, but you just become comfortable at a certain point saying like this is the way that I'm going to go down this path and all the hierarchy of like galleries and you know the publication whatever it is that kind of like fades into the back and you're like okay no matter that's going to be what it is I've got to believe in what I'm doing and just follow like my drive my you know internal drive and whether that's you know painting outside in the woods or you know (laughs) at the beach and I think we have uh, I don't know about you but I have certain ways of justifying certain things like I, when you were talking about plein air painting, I was thinking back. Well, like, we, would you tap into like coal or like eat or, or like church or Turner and and think, oh, it's okay, these guys did it, or you know, or like there was there's stuff in history that you look at and you're like, no, this can be serious. This can be not cliche. Although of course those guys were you know and and people like Constable. I mean, I've looked into this and there's this this uh, um, Alex Katz. There's mm-hmm. You know, there's this big quandary between like the immediate sketch and then like the finished realized painting. Right. And um, you know, who was it? I think it was Constable had like he could only make a painting of a certain size that would fit through this window from his studio. You know, to get out. (laughs) Love those stories. (laughs) Exactly. Cezanne with that narrow little door he built in the corner of the studio to slide a, a large canvas out. Um, oh, it's genius. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's a little sliver. It's about like eight inches yeah, yeah. wide. And so what's that over there? Oh, it's the art door. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just, Just one at a time. Yeah, you got to line them up and they go out one at a time. Exactly. Um, and then in that, again, that hierarchy of like the sketch to the fully realized painting mm-hmm. or something, um, I want, I have always wanted to not have that... Um, Division, I guess, in yeah. the work. I'm also very drawn to work which has a more has more immediacy. Those smaller Alex Katz paintings that were have been done from life. Yeah. Frankly, I would take those any day over over the bigger ones. Um, oh, those little, little sunset ones. And he did some collages too back mm-hmm. the older ones where he would cut out. Oh, those are good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Lois Dodd, you know, also, I think I mentioned those two also because they'd gone to Cooper and that was a source of identification mm -hmm. for me. Um, but there's, and, and even say Frederick Church or Thomas Cole, those little paintings they did, which were, you know, largely about tourism, actually, in yeah. a lot of ways, or some propagandistic kind of right. picture of manifest destiny. Um, exploration. Exploration, yeah, yeah. the frontier. Right. Um, which then the large canvases traveled around like a big Hollywood blockbuster right. kind of painting. Um, but it's the small ones, it's the sketches, the one, the Niagara Falls from life um, that could be fit in a notebook. Those are the, those are the paintings that I'm really have always been very drawn to. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, you're right, that kind of gaining confidence within oneself to acknowledge the sensibility and also try to s figure out a way to push it forward. But at the same time, in New York, when you're, I think especially being young, I, I always wanted to be a part of a community here. And I realized that was something Cooper gave to me, for sure, yeah. right off the bat, was... Um, because a lot of people who went to Cooper stayed in New York, and you had this sense of doing it together and being part of something bigger than just yourself. Right. And I love that about New York. I love that about the galleries and um, museums, and but specifically, you know, galleries and artists um, and how they've been able to kind of all commit to this one place. Yeah. And I didn't want to forgo that. Um, so New York, the studio for me became. I did have a studio for a number of years in New York, a few studios, and those were places of kind of social gathering, having mm -hmm. people over, and um, feeling like I was accessible to a community that I cared about. Right. You know? Like, I have a studio here, you can come visit me. But then at a certain point, you just felt like, I just need that space where I'm working, and that's going to be where I want it to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, How life. is it moving, yeah, how is it working between, I mean, because... It feels like half your heart is, you know, in Massachusetts and half is in New York, and you've figured out a way to do that, really, right? Or are you only are you only back here? Do you spend most of your time in in Boston? No, or I'm here? like I have no idea where I live. <laughs> the same thing. I live the same. Life. You do. Yeah, I, know. I do. I do the same thing because I teach in Pennsylvania, so exactly. I'm, I'm back and forth all the time and I live out of a bag pretty much <laughs> as you can see like my bag here that I bring even this is out of a bag so I, I but I, I guess I kind of like moving and I learned to make my studio nomadic you know I work in Pennsylvania I work here I work wherever I go on my computer too and I'm fortunate enough to do some work digitally too mm -hmm. so I feel like I've been able to adapt to a nomadic setting in a way I mean I think I've certainly wanted to, as, as much as I've been able to, to find a way to, you know, being an artist is such a privilege, it's such a gift, and I have always wanted to make the most of it, and a big part of that has been to, um, is how, how you manage your time, mm -hmm. and I think, I, I know you know, I'm, I know we know many people, many, many people whose lives uh, many more people than we don't know right. <laughs> whose lives are completely, you know, to, to maybe someone else would appear really um, very unusual in terms of the, their erratic schedule or something, but commuting in the middle of the night for an adjunct teaching job, mm -hmm. like, you know, not sleeping because you're 
um, you want to make it to an opening and then you want to make it back and you have a family thing or whatever it is. It's just, it's extreme. And it's because we have that freedom yeah. largely to do that when we can and if we can. And I've always wanted to take advantage of that. But there have been times when I haven't been able to. And one of those times was I was, um, uh, this was, I had appendicitis and I had a, I had an appendectomy and then they found a tumor in my kidney and it was a long process of diagnosis and biopsies and figuring out whether I would do, freeze it or have surgery or what kind of surgery. And, and at this time I didn't have health insurance and I ended up, um, having an address, you know, I used my parents' address to, you know, have a, uh, Mass Health, which was at that time, you know, that Romney had right. um, put together and then denied doing, um, mm-hmm. but was an amazing <laughs> <Some> socialist. <laughs> not doing that crap. Yeah, exactly. But it was, inc- you know, that that was, uh, and I'm I'm fine now, and I had this, you know, cancer taken care of, and I, and so in that sense, you know, that was too much for me. I just couldn't do what I wanted to do. I couldn't live the life that I had been living for a while, yeah. of you know, commuting four and a half hours, burning it at both ends, burning at both ends, doing a semester here, residency there. And I just was tired. And even though that had suited my work, there was one thing this pushed me over the edge. And I think that that can happen at various points, whether it's health or family money. It's almost like the world has a way, either your body or the world has a way of saying like, okay, slow down. You know what I mean? I feel like it happens. I play soccer still. I love soccer. And I have a lot of friends who play. And every once in a while, one one of the guys I play with just goes down with an injury. And I'm like, it's just your body saying, all right, you're approaching 50. It's time to, like, downgrade it and just take it easy. You know, it just has, I feel like the the world has a way of, of talking to you. And sometimes you have to listen. You, you have know? to. And, yeah. and hopefully you're at a point when you can accept it. And... um yeah, because if because it can also you can develop deep resentment, and I've felt that too with when things are not the way I want them to be. And yeah. I have this incredible gift of calling myself an artist, and it's a privilege that I want to do all this stuff, but I can't do it. And that's um, it's hard to kind of live with these different kinds of possibilities um, all suspended at the same time, and you can see when they get truncated or at least you know you know arrested in some you know, for some te- in some temporary way or some permanent mm-hmm. way. But in this case, it just was too much for me. And I ended up, you know, um, feeling like I needed a base and um, I'd reached my limit. And um, I bought some land in Western Massachusetts and built a, a studio, which is, ended up being a house and mm-hmm. mortgage and this whole thing. And now that's really my home. Yeah. Is and it nice, though, having that... Oh, yeah, I mean, and it, sure it's been nice. so healing to me and so incredibly, just so inspiring and really f- I feel real peace there and um, I, in a way that I've never felt before. So talking about like belonging in a place and this show came out of that, Yeah, um, came out of that work and it was out of necessity that I did it, but also in looking ahead to my future and just feeling like throwing away rent and dealing with crazy landlords was like, I just couldn't do it anymore. Oh, that's and not fun for you? <laughs> <laughs> I but it, I could do that. They're like, that's the thing. It's like, I could have done that 
if the health stuff hadn't happened. Like, oh, I think yeah. I would have been, and I think I, I could have endured it. You know, there are people who can endure things at certain points. Yeah, and you're just, like, the, it's like, oh, this is shit I got to do to, like, make my work, you know, to be in this situation. Because, I mean, that's New York to a T. I think in a city, it's, there's the, the pluses and minuses. And sometimes the minuses just tip the scale, and that's when people are like, oh, oh, you're leaving? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're moving out there. That makes sense. You know what I mean? But it it does that. And then there's, but there's a lot of beautiful pluses to it too. And and for the people who are here, I feel like those pluses are just slightly above the minuses. And I think the biggest plus is having is the people. Community. Yeah, Yeah. Community. It is, and very fortunate to be able to show my work here at this gallery and Sigma Jenkins and have that support and. Peter Freeman, there's, you know, but also just all the people I've met, all my community, and, and sometimes I do feel, I feel, I, I sometimes constantly, I feel like I'm not, um, you know, giving back enough uh, because of, yeah, because I'm not physically here, but it's such a, you know, it's like, it's like you feel like you quit the game or something, or you, um, if we all, if we all do this together, it's, we pay our dues, and, um, but I, I think after after many years of, of doing it, and I think I would like to return, you know, in a more mm-hmm. for a period of time to New York. Um, you but, mean before it's underwater? Would you say before it's underwater? Yeah, before it's underwater, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. Try to make it in the next ten to yeah, fifteen years, years, maybe because next <laughs> year or two. <laughs> yeah. Who knows what's happening down the line? Well, you're here now, and you're talking, and so many people are going to be able to right. hear this who maybe aren't in New York, who really enjoy your work too which is nice i think Absolutely. and the work having it here so many people are coming that's the great thing about dropping the kids off at the pool is like people just can come here from all over the world and see what you're doing right. and that's like that unspoken dialogue that's really nice and well i guess now with social media the one positive is there can be a connection with that stuff or a little more immediacy for good or for bad with that but i mean you're able to you know probably I'm guessing take a slice of some of the stuff that you're seeing in your other environment you know the environment that you're in that's a little more relaxing and and that feels good to you and make this work which I'm assuming is born out of that environment correct and then bringing that here Mm -hmm. which is a much different if you can hear the din the slight din of the jackhammers outside (laughs) is you know a different vibe so it's really nice to get the dynamic between you know between the two things and I think that's always been in my work. I've, you know, the consciousness that I have of this kind of space, this mm-hmm. kind of architecture, whether it's the studio or the gallery or the museum or the collector's house or whatever it is, this kind of gray floor, white wall situation, yeah. um, is um, is, uh, and now we have the acoustics of, of the that gallery. That was right on cue. It was right almost like when I was talking <laughs> about the din of. The city, and it's like, oh, someone feels the need to call on a Monday. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but, uh, but this is something I've always been, that awareness of this kind of space has meant that before I even make a painting, I'm aware that whatever it is, will, I'm, I'm imagining it, it kind of infiltrating a space like this, or, mm-hmm. or maybe that sounds a bit aggressive, but like being, um, uh, you know, hopefully drawing awareness to also the space that we're in. The conventions of painting is this rectangle or something flat or color. I am 
interested in playing with those conventions, the conventions of the space as well, right. in the context of the scene. And, and so taking something that shouldn't belong in the space and putting it in here in some sense is motivating to me. Yeah. Um, to, I've made a lot of paintings of things that are old because I'm aware of the expectation of something new mm -hmm. or the, um, the rural and the urban or the... Um, uh, the small with the expectation of it being large, you know, these things which I'm playing with these expectations as a way to, I think, I hope, increase a certain kind of awareness of the conditions for viewing and, right. the, and what we're, what, what we notice and what we don't, what's important and what's not. Again, back to these kinds of hierarchies that are, you know, that I'm, I'm so, you know, I've, I've kind of grown up through and want to be, you know, want to be aware of. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a beautiful show. I mean, the your ability to put someone in a specific place and make them zoom in on certain things, and you know, it, it's just really, it's kind of a great work. Especially, I like the infiltrating adjective into the white walls, and you know, it's kind of like you're someone's walking into this beautiful white cube, and then you're putting them out in the middle of like you know a forest where there's probably some rogue hunters or something going on, you know, where you feel a little uncomfortable. It's like, why am I here? You know what I mean? Or, and it just sets a, a real scene and it has a very uh, powerful impact, I think. I mean, I like incongruity. I like when things don't fit. Yeah. I like when it's rubs up against something. I like kind of feeling uncomfortable through art. I, I like the kind of, um, uh, challenges that come with that mm -hmm. and I I also like other things too I, I like attention and um, beauty and um, sensuality mm -hmm. and absorption you know these are things that are also I also like um, and I want to have them all <laughs> in, yeah. in everything I do yeah well before I for you to go back, <laughs> go back I wanted to touch on music real quick so what were you in a High school punk band, or <laughs> did you play violin, or what? What was I the did, music? Connection? I went to punk shows, and yeah, I was into that scene. I was yeah. like a groupie. My friends had bands and stuff. Um, and the skateboard crowd, you were around, right? Yeah, so that you, was a little bit later. That was that was in college, but. But um, what were you listening to? Oh, then but, is what, well, then oh, in college, yeah, um, I was listening to hip hop primarily right. in college. Um, I was. I don't know, like Wycliffe and Nas. Yeah. Um, God, I love the the visual of you in, in rural Massachusetts in a studio painting a close-up of a tree listening to Illmatic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's, it's true. That's, I mean, or not true, but that, that's, that happens. Like, people have a certain expectation of like, oh, you would probably... Be I remember Roland Reese. I don't know if you remember the artist Roland Reese. Uh, yeah, these, I know what, know of him. You know yeah. these abstract, thick, like jazzy paintings. And he came as a visiting artist when I was in undergraduate school, and I couldn't wait to talk to have him in my studio because I was going to be like, "You like jazz, right?" You know, I, I thought for sure this guy, you know, listens to jazz. And he came in, and I was nervous, and I was, talked a little about my paintings. I was like, "So do you listen to jazz?" And he's like, "No, I just listen to NPR." And it was such a bummer because I had this like. You know, I thought he was like listening to Eric Dolphy or Coltrane and he's making these jazzy paintings, but people listen to things that you might not know or expect. I mean, I think people look at me and I think the way I look and, you know, it's just it, the way my paintings look. Um, there are a lot of expectations there. The fact I'm in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. like, um, 
it's uh, it's something that is you know, troubling um, in general, making these assumptions that, that about people. I often will do a visiting artist thing, and people will be like, you know, I I didn't think we had anything in common, you know. Um, <laughs> like, why? Why? <laughs> why would you think that? You know. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I remember when I got this job in Boston, a number of people said, "You're perfect for that." And I thought, "What does that mean? Like, yeah. why? Like, because I'm. I don't think it's because I'm from Massachusetts, or because it's. I'm interested in these deeper connections of say what what place means. I think it's because of a certain affect or um, you know you, my you, gender, my race, my size, my voice, my. I don't know. Like oh, I thought a, you were going to say more like your painting style or like the way that you work and like I, that fits in with a maybe, certain... Maybe, yeah, I think that that's... Yeah. And it does come out of that. I mean, that makes sense too. But it, there are ways in which that kind of... Um, these assumptions are, you know, I, I think similarly in the way that, say, in my paintings, I want to kind of make something uncomfortable. I think that yeah. there's a way in which just the complexity of one's own identity is, you know is not necessarily visible. Um, how much time do you spend kind of providing the cues to that? And this is, um, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, I don't spend any time providing the cues, honestly. Um, and I don't expect people to know, but, um, but these are, yeah, there's a lot, of course there's a lot that we all do that is unexpected. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's like a, a celebration of incongruity. Yeah, exactly. That's nice, right? That's right. I certainly hope for that. Can I write the essay in your in your catalog about yeah, being please. <laughs> <be> fun? Please. <laughs> Something that might be more congruous, though. Back to music, and you know, I had so I had two best friends growing up, and one one was a classical musician, mm -hmm. and she played oboe and flute and piano oboe. and clarinet, oh my God. and. Um, and I also played piano and studied mm -hmm. it for a long time. I was really not good at it, but I, you know, my mom says I'm good at it. I'm not good at it. <laughs> um, and then I had this other friend who was, you know, this was in the 80s, late, or nine, the whole decade of, say, the 90s. Yeah. So it was grunge, and, right. um, and she was really into, like, Mother Love Bone and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember we had this thing, which was, like, if you said... Pearl Jam, then you were not a true fan. But if you said Pearl Jam, you were like <laughs> one of the emphasis. <laughs> <was>. Deep grunge. <laughs> yeah, it was really. Um, and this, and I was neither. And I was really into this kind of '90s um, female kind of Lilith Fair mm -hmm. singer-songwriter like um, situation, um, where you know the first the first album I ever owned was. Um, Suzanne Vega's Solitude Standing. Oh, yeah. I gave a lecture this summer where I mentioned this because of, in the context of what I was talking about, and um, and not one student, this was oh. at Yale Norfolk, not one student knew who Suzanne That's Vega was. That's depressing, isn't it, when you start pulling out people and you're like, wait, no, no one? Yeah. Is this on? Like, no one knows who these I was kind are. of assuming a position of, like, embarrassment, just because, like, no one's really proud to mention that they, like, <laughs> lo love Suzanne Vega as much as I do. But right. I, um, you know, but th it totally didn't work because yeah. no one knew who she was, so. you got to know your crowd. you got to know my crowd. <laughs> I was sh but just I told was a joke that just went <laughs> over everyone. <laughs> like, exactly. I do that all the time with kids where, like, make some <laughs> reference, and I'm like, no, you guys, that... 
missed the boat on that one. Totally. Yeah. It was the first time that ever happened to me that I'm aware of that um, just totally felt like I'm a different generation entirely. But yeah, but that, I mean, Suzanne Vega still for me is huge. That was a big part of like Iron Bound, that song on that mm -hmm. album. That was how I pictured New York when I came to New York. That oh, was yeah. as much an important part of coming to Cooper Union in New York as anything else was. And um, I was really into that. And um, I was really into like Indigo Girls and, you know, but it was interesting because between the three of, um, between my three, the three of us, mm -hmm. um, is this, and we wrote plays together and we've had an incredibly robust, you know, adolescence together. We had a language we made and, we hadn't really no other friends, and um, we wrote and directed and performed plays about like self harm and you know um, the love story between Arthur Rambo and Paul Verlaine. I mean, we Whoa. were really very nice. um, busy, and yeah. um, but between the three of us, we had absolutely no overlap in our musical taste. I mean, <laughs> remotely. But together, we learned a lot about the others. Yeah, so, that's cool. Yeah, so maybe that's a little more congruent with maybe yeah. how I might appear. The, uh, I listen to a lot of music. I have no idea what it is. I yeah. just kind of put it on, on Spotify like it sounds good, but of... like I have no idea. I don't listen to albums really anymore. The albums I listen to are albums I listen to before digital music. Yeah. So um, I, I do. I mean, I like Blood Orange. I don't know if that's hip-hop though. You know? I don't know Blood Orange. It's, um, yeah, um, that's great. But I just, you know, honestly, like, albums are not, you know, something, or even artists, I don't even really know anymore. Yeah. I feel like I should look at my Spotify when there's something I like, but I just kind of let it happen. Well, it's kind of nice. It's like a gigantic mixtape that yeah. someone made for you that you can never, it goes to infinity, which right. is <laughs> exactly. kind of amazing in a way. But yeah, okay. Well, um, thanks for taking all this time it's been great to talk to you and check out the shows it looks amazing how long is it up it's actually up only for two more days two through more days. Um, november 22nd okay so you guys missed it but it's going to be archived on the website yes and how else can people see your work like online there's or? A, yeah online and then um there's also we made a little catalog for the show oh, nice. which is which includes an essay um by aaron yerby who's uh, an anthropologist and someone who I've been in dialogue with about mm -hmm. my work since Vienna. We lived there together. Oh, nice. And um, and her essay is really about the about the, the thematics that are in the show mm -hmm. of um, boundaries and um, and uh, property ownership and what that means. And um, also in an American kind of context, she has done work on spiritualism and mediumship and specifically as it relates to kind of a haunting of you know america's past mm -hmm. um which are very present in our daily experience and i think that that's a lot about what my what's happening in this body of work as well and it's so it's so great when before. you get like an essay like that that you feel really captures what it's about but does it in a way that you can't because we're visual you know what I mean? Exactly. It's, it's a real gift, I think. Absolutely. So people can get that on through the gallery online. Yeah, through the or gallery, just it's ten dollars, like a, for a little booklet. The nice. images are dark, but it's a great little book, and then um, downloadable as a PDF on my website oh, cool. or. Um, Which is yeah. yournamecom Yeah, basically. exactly. Okay. Nice. Sounds good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks. Thanks.
Sound and Vision was conceived, produced, recorded, edited, mastered, and facilitated by myself, Ryan Alfred. You can find images that I take from the podcast sessions by going to the images page on the website soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find even more images on the podcast Instagram feed at Sound and Vision Podcast. If you love hearing these artists speak about their life and work, please support the podcast by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. It's also available on Stitcher and Google Play. You can even donate to help support the podcast by clicking the donate button on the webpage. The introduction and accompanying music was generously provided by Michael Lovett. Michael records as Nazca Lines and also Moonlights in the band Metronomy. The bio and outro music were provided by Sean Seymour. Sean and his wife Yoshimi are a band called Lullatone based in Nagoya, Japan. Thanks to them and also Jacob Tutu and Logan Takahashi who have also lent music to the podcast. Thanks to all the listeners who share and support the podcast. All this is done by myself without funding and ads, and it really is you all who help spread the word, and you spread it well. Many thanks to all of you and all the artists for sharing their stories and time with me. Thank you.